Welcome to today's Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I am glad that you've joined us this morning. Today we are looking at the lesson from May 17th, entitled, The Man Born Blind. For our lessons, we are using the Nazarene Quarterly, if you have one of those and would like to look along with us. But if you don't, our text is from John chapter 9, the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll also be looking at verses 34 through 41. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together and to study your word. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would guide us as we look into your word to teach us what we need to know. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen. So our lesson today, The Man Born Blind. The theme is Jesus offers sight to the spiritually blind. And our key verse says, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. In 1995, Mary Ann Frankel was involved in a serious car accident. The good news was she survived. The bad news, she lost her eyesight and became blind. More than 20 years later, she suffered a fall at her home. The bad news was she had to go and have spinal surgery. The good news, when she woke up for surgery, somehow her sight had been restored. Her doctor said he had no idea how it happened, but Marianne could see again. And what's interesting, she was colorblind before she regained her sight. After she regained her sight, she was no longer colorblind. So we find examples of people who, who have lost their sight for one reason or another, and then they get it back. And so in today's lesson, we have a, a similar story. So we see a man who is blind since birth, and uh, Jesus encounters this man as he's traveling with his disciples. Uh, most of us have not experienced physical blindness, but all of us at some point have experienced spiritual blindness. And so today, as we look at this, we want to see how the miracle that Jesus did, what that can teach us about spiritual blindness. In the lesson today, Jesus has returned to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles. And when he does, he faces a very mixed reaction. People just don't know what to make of him. In fact, John 7 verse 5 tells us even his own brothers did not believe him. So at the festival, the crowd is undecided. Some of them were saying he's a good man. Others were saying he deceives the people. Now, this is a week-long festival. And Jesus spends the festival uh, teaching them about who he is. It's during this festival that he tells them, uh, I am the light of the world. So some think he's a prophet. Others are ready to believe that he might be the Messiah. They ask the question, would the Messiah do more signs or miracles than this man has done? Others couldn't quite come to that point. They pointed out that Jesus had never been taught. He had no formal training under a rabbi. 
They pointed out, too, that Jesus was from Galilee. And this was a big sticking point because Galilee had such a bad reputation. People just couldn't understand how the Messiah could be from Galilee. On the last day of the festival, events finally reached a boiling point. The Pharisees send guards to arrest Jesus. But the guards return to the Pharisees and say, No one ever spoke the way this man speaks. And then Jesus confronts the crowd with the knowledge that he is the Messiah. He tells them, I am the great I am. Now, this is too much for many in the crowd. They pick up stones to stone him, uh, and Jesus manages to slip away. So this is where our text for today comes in. After leaving the temple, Jesus meets a man that's born blind, and he restores his sight. This results in two very different responses. The blind man comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and he worships Jesus. However, the Pharisees believe that Jesus is a sinner. They end up blaspheming. Uh, So we see two reactions. Jesus explains them in the key verse that we read. He says, I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Jesus and his disciples encounter this man along the road. He's a beggar. He's been blind since birth. As a blind man, he would have a very difficult life, uh, a life reduced to poverty, to begging. He would be shut out of many aspects of, of a normal Jewish life. So life couldn't have been easy for him. When they meet him, the disciples turn to Jesus with a question. Who sinned? Was it this man who sinned? Was it his parents who sinned? Where was the sin that caused him to be born blind? And you have to wonder what the blind man thought when he heard the disciples discussing his case. It was probably something that he heard a lot, that uh, it was a commonly held belief. Illness, disability, these were the results of sin. So I'm sure the blind man by now had heard a number of people uh, discuss who exactly was responsible for his blindness. But Jesus says something that must have taken the blind man, and the disciples by surprise. Jesus says, this man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Now, can you imagine uh, the hope that the blind man feels when he hears this? Finally, someone sees him as more than a sinner. Someone sees him as a person capable of displaying God's work. And I'm sure he wondered, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, Jesus then does something that no one expects. He spits on the ground, and then he makes mud out of the clay and the saliva, and he smears this on the man's eyelids. And he tells the blind man, he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And then, evidently, Jesus and the disciples walk away. Now, Jesus had used a lot of different techniques when it came to healing people, but this certainly was one of the most unique. The blind man is required to do very little in order to be healed. He doesn't approach Jesus. Jesus takes the initiative and comes to him. He isn't asked whether he believes in Jesus or not. Jesus makes the first move, 
uh, by putting the clay on his eyelids. The man does have to obey by going to the pool of Siloam and washing. But again, Jesus makes this almost inevitable. The man is standing there with mud and spit on his face. It's natural he's going to want to wash it off. So I'm not trying to downplay the man's role in this. But encounters, in encounters with Jesus, we have to make a choice, and he made a choice. But it seems that Jesus, in his mercy, did everything possible to get this man to obey so that he could be healed. Now, we're not told what happens at the Pool of Siloam, but you can imagine the blind man's amazement. He gropes his way to the pool. He feels his way to the edge of the water, still completely blind. He kneels. He begins splashing water on his face, and then with his face clean, he opens his eyes, and now he can see. I can't imagine what that would be like, to see when you've never seen before. This man had been blind since birth. He didn't even have memories of seeing before this. So I'm sure that he can't quite believe that this has happened to him. And once he arrives home, his neighbors can't believe it either. When they see him with normal vision, with his sight restored, they ask, you know, what is going on here? Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some of them said, yes, you know, it's him. And others said, there's, there's no way. This only looks like that man. When the blind man responds, I am that man, they ask him straight out, well, how are you able to see? So he tells them. I met the man they called Jesus. He made mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now I can see. When the neighbors hear Jesus' name, they know they have a problem. The Jewish leaders had put out the word. Anyone acknowledging that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And this was a very serious consequence. A Jewish person put out of the synagogue was cut off from all of his fellow Jews. No other Jewish person would socialize with him. No one would do business with him. They wouldn't buy from him. They wouldn't sell to him. So you're talking about being cut off completely from society. The neighbors wanted to make sure they weren't caught up in this. So basically, they inform on Jesus. They haul this man to the Pharisees to make sure they're not blamed for holding back information. When the Pharisees learn what Jesus has done, they have one immediate objection. All of this had taken place on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is when all work is forbidden. When Jesus healed this man's uh, sight by making mud out of clay and spit, when he puts it on the man's eyelids, he's breaking a number of the Sabbath day regulations. Now, these regulations weren't from the written law the law that Moses had given them, but it was from the oral law, these additional regulations that had been put into place to define exactly what it meant to work on the Sabbath. But to the Pharisees, to the Jewish people in general, the oral law was just as valid, just as binding as the written law. So when Jesus broke the Sabbath day regulations, in the eyes of the Pharisees, he was a sinner. He was a lawbreaker. It's hard for us to understand how seriously these commandments against the Sabbath were taken. But we get an idea from something that happened 
in 167 B.C., a, a group of Jews had rebelled against the Syrian ruler at that time. And when he sends the Syrian army against them, they retreat into the desert and take refuge in caves there. And they prepare to defend themselves. But the day the Syrian army attacks, it's on the Sabbath. Now, this is no problem for the Syrians. They don't observe the Sabbath. It was a big problem for the Jewish people there. Rather than defend themselves, rather than even put something at the mouth of the cave to block out the Syrians, they chose to do no work on the Sabbath. And as a result, over 1,000 men, women, children were slaughtered by the Syrian army. So you can see what the importance of the Sabbath was to the Jewish people. So the Pharisees don't know what to think. Some of them say, this man isn't from God. He didn't keep the Sabbath. And others are asking, well, if he's a sinner, how can he perform miracles like this? When they ask the blind man what his opinion is, he tells them Jesus must be a prophet. But they just can't quite make themselves believe this, that Jesus could be a prophet when he breaks the Sabbath. So they decide this man must not really have been blind. This must have been a hoax. And you can imagine there were bound to be people who faked disabilities in order to, to beg more effectively. So they think it's a hoax. They call in the man's parents and they ask him, Is this the son that you say was born blind? How is he able to see? Now, the boy's parents, they aren't, aren't fools. They don't want any part of this because they realize the potential for trouble that it brings about. They dodge the whole issue. They tell the Pharisees, yes, this is our son. We know he's our son. We know he was born blind. How he's able to see, we have no idea. But he's old enough, you need to ask him. So the Pharisees really hadn't gotten anywhere in solving their problems. Jesus had to be a sinner, but how could a sinner do a miracle like this? So they call the blind men back and say, look, we know it couldn't have happened the way that you claim it happened. You know, tell us the real story. At this point, the Pharisees are no longer seeking the truth. They've decided Jesus is a sinner. They are refusing to consider anything that might contradict this. So they are deliberately refusing to see the truth. They're blind but it's a blindness that they have chosen to embrace. Now, Jesus had confronted them earlier with the words of Isaiah, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. So, here we see a man who used to be born blind, and now he can see. The Pharisees can't wrap their minds around it. They've decided Jesus must be a sinner. They are refusing uh, to acknowledge that they might be wrong. Now, the man who was born blind shows considerable courage here. He refuses to name Jesus as a sinner. In fact, he tells them if, he, if this man, if this Jesus wasn't from God, he couldn't do anything. But the Pharisees aren't hearing this. They lecture the man and say, you were steeped in sin, and then they throw him out of the synagogue. 
Now, Jesus learns about this. He finds the man again, and he asks the man who used to be blind. He asks him a very important question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, it's been slowly dawning on the blind man. This man, Jesus, is no ordinary man. This man is like no one he's ever heard of before. And when Jesus tells him, I am the Son of Man, the one speaking to you, I am the Son of Man, the blind man responds, Lord, I believe. And then the scripture tells us that he worships Jesus there. So now the man who had been cured of his physical blindness has also been cured of his spiritual blindness. And this is where the key verse comes in. Jesus announces, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. When we encounter Jesus, we pass judgment on ourselves by our response. We either welcome the light, and we find our blindness healed, or we reject the light, and we find ourselves even more blind. So, as we look at today's scripture, we can see the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees on full display, a blindness caused by their willful refusal to see who Jesus was. And we find it easy to condemn the Pharisees, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, what spiritual blindness do we suffer? You know, what are we refusing to see? And so I want to look at several things we can learn from uh, this lesson that we have today. First, we see that we are often blind to the suffering that's going on around us. And we're blind to the idea that time is short. We have limited opportunities to do God's work. Jesus tells his disciples, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. When the disciples encounter this man born blind, they see a theological problem, a philosophical problem. Why is this man suffering? Why was he born blind? Who sinned? The disciples are discussing the man as if he weren't even there. They are not talking to the man. They're talking about the man. Scripture tells us, though, as Jesus went along, he saw a man. Jesus encounters the man himself. He sees and empathizes with the man's suffering. The disciples philosophize while Jesus takes action to relieve the suffering. So, when we look at our world, our sinful world around us, do we see real people? Or do we see social issues that we can debate? We may become so eager to, to confront immorality and un unrighteousness, to take a stand against the evils of our culture, that we forget we're dealing with actual people. It's important to be the salt and the light of our world, but when we take our stand, we can't turn those on the other side into our enemies. They are people, real people, who need our compassion. So, when we're fighting to uphold family values, when we're fighting for morals, we have to be aware that we have real hurting people on the other side. Jesus tells them, We must do the works of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus knew his time was short. He would be leaving this world shortly. But he was very definite. 
It wasn't just he who would do the work of the Father. Jesus says, we. He was deliberately including the disciples. When Jesus left this world, it would be up to the disciples to do the work. So Jesus wanted the disciples to know the night comes for all of us. Now, we know that the night will come in the form of death at some point. Every one of us will eventually leave this physical world. Jesus knew that moment was coming pretty quickly for him. But whether we live to be 10 or 100, our lives pass very quickly. And it's easy to put off what we know we should be doing for God, thinking, I have plenty of time. And then we find somehow our lives are slipping by before we're even aware of it. In Psalm 90, Moses writes, Teach us to number our days. And what he means is help us to realize our days are limited. They will run out at some point. But the night also comes because the opportunities that we have to do the work of God, these opportunities have a limited time span. We never know when opportunities will be cut off. We make the assumption that today will be like yesterday. Tomorrow will be like today. But it's a fact of life. Circumstances change and they change in the blink of an eye. We can look at all of this outbreak of the coronavirus. Most of us had no idea that our lives would change so drastically in just a few weeks. So Jesus is warning his disciples don't spend your time talking. When you have the opportunity to do God's work, take that opportunity. You never know when the night is coming, when that work is going to become impossible. Now, Jesus tells them, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Jesus had been telling them all along, I am the light of the world. Now he's adding a qualifier. He says, I am the light of the world while I am in the world. So the unspoken assumption here is, after I've left, it's up to you to be the light. I won't be here, but you will be. When the disciples saw this blind man, they saw a theological mystery, but Jesus saw an opportunity, an opportunity to display God's work. If we're going to be the light of the world, we have to recognize the opportunities that we have to display God's work and God's glory. When we look at the circumstances around us, especially when our circumstances are difficult, do we see problems? Do we see obstacles? Do we see opportunities to glorify God by doing His work? Now, we can also be blind to God's perspective on suffering. The disciples were concerned with why. Why is the man suffering by being born blind? Jesus tells them, you're not looking at this from the right viewpoint. What's important is not the cause of the suffering. What's important is the purpose of the suffering. It's not that someone sinned and caused this man's suffering. This man is blind because God is planning to use him to demonstrate God's own work in this world. How we deal with suffering is going to be one of the most important decisions that we make in life. Uh, Scott Peck, a psychiatrist, writes, One of the greatest truths of life is the fact that life is difficult. How we deal with that pain and suffering is going to make all of the difference. Now, Americans, for the most part, don't see this reality. 
we feel we should be able to avoid suffering. Instead of dealing with our problems head on, instead of facing suffering, we usually look for a way out, a way to alleviate our pain, to numb ourselves. We turn to alcohol. We turn to other drugs. We turn to sex. We turn to shopping. We turn to anything that we think is going to make us feel better. Jesus was offering his disciples a totally different perspective on suffering. He told them suffering is going to come. Don't spend your time on why. Focus on God's purpose for the suffering. Focus on allowing the suffering to do God's work, to show God's glory. Now, when we hear Jesus' answer to the the disciples, the idea that God ordained this man's suffering in order to display his works, it often doesn't make sense to us. Many of us would object. God would allow this man to suffer blindness for years just so he can be glorified, so that we can know God's works. It doesn't seem to make sense for us. So there are are different reasons why this is true. God's uh, purpose for suffering, it often doesn't make sense to us because when we focus on the why, we're led astray. You know, our ability to think, to, to figure things out, to reason why, is very limited. We make mistakes in our logic. We begin with wrong assumptions. The disciples assumed there were two possible reasons for this man's blindness. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. The reality that Jesus pointed out, neither of those are correct. There's a reason that they can't see that must be revealed to them. So, we have to ask ourselves, what assumptions are we making about our suffering? What uh, additional truth does God want to reveal to us? When we focus on blame, it usually leads us to two bad conclusions. We blame the victim sometimes, and that causes them even more suffering. Or, we can't find anyone to blame, and so we assume somehow that God is not being fair that God is unjust in this. We know that sin causes suffering. We have example after example from our own lives. We can see it in the lives of others. Uh, Times when we have suffered because of our sins. Jesus' point is specific suffering can't always be tied to a specific sin. There may be other reasons, other purposes involved. God's purpose for suffering often doesn't make sense to us because we have too high a view of man's importance and we have too low a view of God's glory. Now, Jesus is not ignoring the man's suffering. He doesn't dismiss it. This man faced a difficult life because of his blindness. You know, uh, God doesn't ignore that. God doesn't make light of our suffering. He doesn't tell us, you know, take it like a man. God acknowledges the reality of our suffering. But uh, this idea that God can ordain our suffering, it shocks us because we think too highly of man. A lot of times we have the idea that this world revolves around us. It revolves around our happiness. Uh, We think the world is designed for our fulfillment. So it shocks us to hear that God may actually cause us discomfort. God may actually allow us unhappiness. 
God's biggest desire for us is not our happiness. His biggest desire is our holiness. You know, the, the paradox is that when we allow God to make us holy, we also gain happiness. Jesus explained this very clearly. He said, those who save their lives will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. So it's only by losing our lives, by losing our lives to God's purpose, to God's plan, even if that involves suffering, that we find our life. So we have to be careful. You know, a lot of times we can present the gospel as coming to God so that God can meet all of our needs, so that we can be blessed by all the things God provides to us. We have to get past the point where we value God because of what he does for us. Instead, we have to learn to value God for who he is. And when we do this, then we are willing to see him glorified, even if it's at the expense of our suffering. Now, this idea that God ordains suffering or can ordain suffering as a means to display his glory, it also shocks us because we have too low a view of the glory of God. We don't value God's glory high enough. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says very clearly, what is the chief end of man? A man's chief end is to glorify God. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7 says, Bring my sons from distant lands, my daughters from remote regions of the earth, everyone who belongs to me, whom I created for my glory. So God makes it clear we were created for his glory. God's perspective on suffering doesn't make sense to us a lot of times because our worldview is skewed. We see things from a flawed perspective. We have a skewed value system. A lot of times we can't tell what is truly important and what's not important. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, beyond all comprehension. Paul tells us, no matter what affliction we have here, in the light of eternity, it is light and momentary. That's not our perspective as we go through the suffering, but that's reality. So we don't know what is truly good, what is truly bad. We have to ask ourselves, how do we get to a correct understanding of suffering? How do we get to the point where we understand suffering may be valuable and worthwhile? First, we have to realize we can endure suffering as long as it is meaningful. We know of lots of situations where people go through tremendous sufferings, and they do it with a good spirit because they see it as valuable. They feel that they are gaining something through the suffering. Many parents have cheerfully made great sacrifices for their children because they believe that that sacrifice will bear fruit later on. When we look back at times in our history, uh, like World War II, you know, this was a hard time for many Americans. Uh, young men were putting their lives on hold, risking their lives to go overseas and fight. The people who stayed behind were putting up with shortages and rationing. Uh, life was difficult, but what's interesting is that later, when people look back at this time, many of them felt like it was one of the best times of their lives. 
because they felt like they were doing something important. What they were doing had significance, and this gave meaning to their suffering. Nietzsche was an atheist philosopher, and I don't recommend his philosophy, but he did say one thing that, one thing that I like. He said, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And that's certainly true. When we have a why, we can put up with lots of different things. Now, we get a correct understanding of suffering when we realize our suffering takes on ultimate meaning when it brings glory to God, when it displays God's infinite worth. When Job was suffering his trials, his friend Eliphaz asked him a very important question. Eliphaz asked, Can a man be a benefit to God? In other words, how in the world can we, as insignificant, as powerless as we are, how can we do anything that's going to benefit an omnipotent, eternal God? But look at what Jesus is telling us here. He is saying we have the ability to actually do something for God himself. We have a way to benefit God. Our suffering can add to the glory of God. Now, this is an amazing privilege or opportunity that God allows to us that we can participate in adding to God's glory. You know, Jesus goes on uh, to add to this in the Beatitudes. He ends the Beatitudes by saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, why is this such a blessing? It's a blessing because it allows us to share in the work of the prophets, representing God, glorifying God in this world. Persecution is what allows us to be the salt of the earth, the light of this world. As our good deeds are seen, they glorify God in heaven. So suffering can take on ultimate meaning only when it's connected to God and to His glory. And we can embrace this idea of suffering but only if we put a supreme value on God. The idea that suffering has value makes no sense to us until God becomes our ultimate value, until God becomes what is most precious to us. When God's glory is worth anything, even our pain and suffering. Now, we are also blind in this world to how God works in the world and in our lives. You know, we really need a different definition of miracle. Just because we can explain how something happens on a surface level doesn't mean that it's not a miracle. In the end, events that we think we can explain, events that we can't even try to explain, are the same. At some point, everything becomes unexplainable. When we look at Jesus' healing of the blind man, This in itself is no different from healings that take place every day in our body through our immune system. Uh, We understand part of how our immune system works, and so we consider this to be natural and not a miracle. But it's a very superficial understanding. Jesus is, is performing the same thing here. We call one of these a miracle, and one of them we don't. But Jesus uses this method. Mixing the clay, putting it into saliva, and then putting this paste on the man's eyes. He's doing this partly to illustrate God works through his physical creation. It's important for us to grasp that idea. 
You know, God works through the world that he created. First of all, it tells us God is always present and working in our world. God doesn't just periodically intervene uh, to set things right. You know, we often have this idea. God is removed from direct involvement. Occasionally, he will step in. Michael Horton writes, The question is not whether God is involved in every aspect of our lives. The question is how God is involved. God is intimately, infinitely, thoroughly connected with his creation. So we are assured that God is aware of us, that God knows what is going on with us, that he's concerned with these things. Jesus tells us God is so attuned to his creation, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God being aware of it. And Jesus then goes on to say, even the hairs of your head are numbered. And a lot of times we can say, well, you know, Jesus was exaggerating for effect here. But there's nothing to indicate that this was not a literal statement. Uh, there was a 15, 15th century theologian by the name of Angelus Salasius. And he, he had a quotation where he said, If God stopped thinking of me, he would cease to exist. And that sounds shocking to us. But Jesus really is telling us the same thing. God, by definition of who he is, is thinking of me. I am always on God's mind. Psalm 139 verse 17 says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. So when I grasp this, uh, I have a trust in God that isn't there otherwise. When I understand how important I am to God, I can have a radical trust in Him where I take the plunge to do anything that God asks me to do. Now, it's important for us to see God working in His creation for another reason, and that is we have the idea that when God works, it's through dramatic or supernatural means. But God works in a variety of ways including a lot of ways that we take for granted in this common everyday world around us. You know, Jesus anointed the blind man, and his sight was restored immediately. God also restores sight by having our bodies heal themselves, using the natural ability of our cells to regenerate. We don't consider these gradual, natural workings of God to be miracles, and so we miss out on an important understanding of who God is, of how God works. We really need to be challenged on our entire worldview. You know, what is a miracle? What is a disaster? We have to realize most of the time we don't know enough to decide when something is a miracle or when it is actually a disaster. You know, the man, the blind man had been blind since birth, and most of us would consider this a disaster, but this circumstance was used to bring him to Christ. The Pharisees had no physical disability. They suffered, though, a very real disaster. They remained blind to who Christ was. So we have to realize how false our perception of reality truly is. A lot of times what we think we know about reality is just an illusion. You know, we look at our lives and we see things that we think are disasters, and we blame God. Why hasn't he treated us better than this? 
but we fail to see these disasters may actually be very valuable things. Andrew Solomon wrote a, tree, wrote a book called Far From the Tree, and what he did was he looked at parents who had children that were born with extreme handicaps or disabilities, you know, children with Down syndrome, children with schizophrenia, extreme autism. And what he found was this uh, experience of the parents in this case was often a conundrum. He writes, most of the families that he describes in his book, they ended up being grateful for the experience that they had, an experience that they thought they would have done anything to avoid. So when we don't grasp how God works in this life through this everyday world, we also fail to realize how God works in our spiritual lives. We value the dramatic miracle. We don't value the everyday miracle. We value something that happens immediately, something with drama and emotion. We fail to understand most of the time God is working through the everyday, uh, the commonplace, what we may even consider trivial. So a lot of times we wait for God to change us in one dramatic life-altering transformation. You know, we look for our, our road to Damascus experience. But most of the time, God changes us slowly, little by little, every day, as we practice those common spiritual disciplines. When we need to learn patience, God doesn't send an angel. He puts us into daily contact with people that get on our nerves. You know, in Romans 5, Paul writes, we have the hope of sharing in the glory of God. But this hope doesn't come about through a second Pentecost, a dramatic anointing of, of tongues of fire. Instead, when Paul describes God's plan, he says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. In other words, hope of the glory of God is brought about through the day-to-day -day workings in our lives, through the sufferings, through the hardships that we go through. You know, a lot of times God isn't able to do His work in our lives because we trivialize how He works day to day. Uh, there's an old joke about a man who is caught in a flood and he winds up trapped on the roof of his house as the waters get higher and higher. Well, as he's sitting there, along comes a man in a canoe and he tells him, jump in, I can save you. The man on the roof says, no thanks, I prayed to God, I have faith he's going to save me. So the man on the canoe goes along his way. Then a man in a motorboat comes by, says the same thing, hop in, I can save you. Again, the man on the roof says, no, don't worry about it, I prayed God is going to save me. Later on, a helicopter comes along. They lower a rope and say, climb aboard, we can save you. And again, the man says, no, I prayed to God, he will save me. Well, the water gets higher and higher, and eventually the man is drowned. He makes his way to heaven. And when he encounters God, he says, you know, what happened? I had faith in you. I thought you were coming to save me, but you let me drown. And then God tells him, I sent you a canoe, a motorboat, a helicopter, 
You know, what more could you expect? And so, you know, a lot of times we're like that. We're waiting for God to do something dramatic in our lives. And we're overlooking all of the common everyday ways that God is seeking to transform us. You know, our key verse, uh, Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, that's a little bit uh, different for us, because Jesus said in John 3, God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And later in John 12, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So it looks like Jesus is contradicting himself. Did he come for judgment or did he not? But Jesus is telling us, my first purpose, my main reason for coming into this world was to save, not to condemn. But inevitably, as some are saved, others are going to rebel in their unbelief and they are going to face judgment. When we encounter Jesus, we cannot come away unchanged. We will either believe and trust him or we will disbelieve and we will become more and more blind. So as we look at this lesson, I want to encourage you. How are you coming away from your encounter with Jesus? Are you allowing him to change you, to give you sight? Or are you refusing to see? Are you becoming more and more blind? Let's close today's lesson with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what you've shown us. We thank you of the mercy and the grace that we've seen displayed in this lesson. We thank you that you did come, Lord, to provide us with light to cure our spiritual blindness. But we realize that we have a choice in this matter. And how we react to you is going to make a huge difference. And whether we gain our spiritual eyesight or whether we remain blind. So help us, Lord, uh, to respond to what you've told us, to allow you into our lives, into our hearts, uh, to open us up, Lord, to your working so that we can truly see. We give you the glory in your name. Amen.